the impact was was pretty dramatic. So what we began to see happening was in an area of medicine where you would have as many as 15% to 20% of the population receiving surgeries, 35 to 45% of the population receiving uh, invasive injection care, and 30 to 40% of the population receiving advanced imaging such as CT and MRI. The utilization of those high-cost procedures began to shift dramatically. So we were seeing 70-plus percent reductions in total surgical rates, 60 to 70% reductions in injection care rates, and about the same translation into advanced imaging rates, and then an almost cessation of, of ER utilization. And these programs where we were changing the delivery model for primary care and for conservative care providers. Hello and welcome to this episode of Solving Healthcare. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Mr. Chad Gray, the CEO and founder of the company IMC. Chad has been the CEO for about 10 years and his company takes a very unique perspective on managing musculoskeletal conditions. Within the Solving Healthcare podcast, we seek to identify and promote companies that are positively disrupting the healthcare space. And I think you'll see through the interview today with Chad, you'll understand a little bit about the passion that he has. Individuals, the solution that they put together and the value it can create for your organization. Hey, Mike, it's Chad. Hey, bud. How you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. What I would love to know is a little bit more about you and how you got to be in the position you're in right now. Yeah, excellent. So uh, I came from a research background. I started out as a biochemistry major some 30 years ago or so, and then found myself in a PhD program in neuroscience and kind of approaching the last year of that, that program, I got distracted by some personal issues, kind of pulled out of the program and dropped into a, a physical therapy program that was in the university kind of next door at Florida A&M University. A friend of mine was a faculty there and faculty at the med school and, you know, suggested that that'd be a great kind of next step if it wasn't going to go ahead and complete the PhD. And so dropped into the PT program. And as I got into the program, kind of saw how variable some of the methods where they were teaching, you know, there was really no, no consistent standard. A lot of the treatment methods and techniques they were teaching us didn't seem to have a lot of validation in the science that I could find. And so I just kind of started diving into musculoskeletal medicine in general because that was certainly the big focus for the physical therapy program. And just started looking at it from a, you know, that kind of scientific mind, that research perspective and said, let me just see how much standardization there is out there. You know, are there clear kind of methods and, and protocols that are winners? And what I found was that that area of medicine, that domain of medicine was highly variable. There was a number of different strategies, techniques, and methods that were being taught in, in the PT programs and the chiropractic programs. And then in medical school, there was little to no training at all being given to the uh, exiting physicians. And so I just kind of took it upon myself at that point to to really dive into the research and the, the study data and, and try to better understand what was working, what wasn't working, what did the science support and validate and back up from a randomized controlled trial perspective or peer review perspective? You know, what did they not support and you know, what was clearly being identified as ineffective? 
know, what were some of the core issues that were preventing us from, from kind of refining and, and standardizing the approach for musculoskeletal medicine? What were some of the barriers that were stopping that, that kind of translation of the great science that existed into clinical application? And you know, it took a, about 18 months to two years and read several thousand articles and then just kind of had an aha moment one day and said, oh, darn, I know how to fix this. I think I see a way forward. And it clearly involved not really kind of taking the medical industry kind of head on and telling them how broken and how kind of dysfunctional and fragmented it was. But but let me go ahead and design some some clinical trials and some effectiveness studies and deploy them across some practices and see if we could first and foremost kind of validate what the science was saying and kind of translate it into real world data. And then instead of, you know, taking traditional routes and going to carriers or going to some of the governmental entities and trying to get them to kind of change or transform how they were delivering care, I decided to go straight to the self-funded employer because I had a belief at that point in time, I wasn't certain of it yet, but I had a belief that because they had first dollar risk involved, that they would have an interest in this sort of approach and they would help me provide kind of that third level of validation beyond what the peer peer review science said, behind what our clinical trials had shown. They'd also help me kind of validate it by looking at the total cost of care that that was ultimately the third leg of the stool here to support what I knew would be a completely different delivery model for musculoskeletal medicine. So I started out on that journey with just a few small practices and dropped in those standards and, and methods that the science supported. And then we started measuring the outcomes on tens of thousands of patients over the course of about 10 years before we ever designed a product or a service that we were going to take to market. And so we, we knew we needed that kind of three-pronged kind of validation or approach. You know, peer science was backed up by hard data from the scientific studies. We had clinical trials that were being run on populations in various geographies around the country. So we had real-world data that said, ultimately, yes, this peer science and the methods that we see there that are identified as, as best practices translate into a great result in the real world when you deploy them. And then, then thirdly, we partnered with people that could share financial data with us so that we could see the impact on total cost of care whenever these highly validated protocols were being dropped into to medical practice. And so just spent 10 years gathering a ton of data, quality data, and then ultimately cost data to kind of support and validate what we were doing. And then we started designing products and services to make that scalable and reproducible, not just in certain locations, but broadly across the U.S. And so that's the journey I've been on for the last 25 years now. Wow, that's an amazing story because you're right. I mean, what what do most people that get into physical therapy, what traditionally is their background? Oh gosh, it's, it's very, but a lot of them are, are exercise physiology majors and nutrition majors. Some yeah, wanted to go to med school, but, but didn't, you know, didn't want to be kind of burdened by the, you know, the number of years it took to, to, to complete the, the journey. And then, and then certainly, you know, the, the, the lifestyle isn't always as luxurious as, as TV makes it out to be, you know, being on call and, and having to kind of churn and burn and, and grind daily just to make a living as a, as a provider isn't always a, a glamorous sort of lifestyle or profession. So, 
Yeah, but that's interesting that you had a biochemistry focus where it's on research and outcomes. And then you took kind of a, a different slant. You said, oh, you know what? For a variety of reasons, I'm going to get into physical therapy. So that, that definitely gave you an interesting footprint or you know, an interesting perspective of marrying a science-based process to it's still a science, but physical therapy is, is uh, you're right, most of the folks are, let's say they got kinesiology background or something like that, but, but definitely an interesting perspective. So I'm kind of curious to know, in terms of the research that you were able to find, the, can you give some perspective and color on the size of the problem and what were you finding as the most common, either inconsistency or challenge within the physical therapy space? Well, it's not just physical therapy space. It's it's all medical disciplines. They all have a very similar problem. The journey for most patients begins in primary care. And as I mentioned earlier, if you if you look at the medical schools in the U.S., 52% of them in their current state today, and this has been the case for the last 50 plus years, in their current state today, 52% of med schools offer nothing in their curriculum around how to manage patients in this space. The other 48% of med schools offer less than two weeks, and it's voluntary for them to go through a rotation that focuses on musculoskeletal assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. So we've got, we've got this huge gap in physician training that exists in the U.S. And, and always has, and nobody's ever filled that gap. And it's that gap in, in training and capability to triage cases or kind of subgroup them appropriately and put them in the right treatment at the right time that's been the biggest influence on the patterns and the trends we've seen in musculoskeletal health. And certainly that's how it's risen to the magnitude that it's risen to. I mean, this is the number one, number two, or number three plan spend for every employer in America right now. Please, the way please. it got there is, is pretty, pretty simple. Physicians weren't trained how to properly examine it, assess it, diagnose it, and treat it. And as a result, there is just a ton of activity that happens in this space that's highly variable. A lot of the treatments that are going on are ineffective and have been proven that way by the science, but nobody's really kind of wrapped their arms around this problem and said, hey, look, we need to standardize around the right kind of assessment model. We need to standardize around the right kind of treatment approaches that we use once we've properly assessed and diagnosed this condition. And we need to gather outcomes on patients that are going through this sort of a, a medical management program so that we can react to those outcomes and constantly refine and adjust the protocols so that we get better and better and better at delivering medicine in this area. And so this wasn't just a, a physical therapy problem. This was, a, this was an entire industry issue or problem across all disciplines that we, we set out to fix. And we, we started with primary care and physical therapy as the logical first two steps because that's where you can capture most of your great results and your great outcomes. But you had to first and foremost create a, a standard that you could train to and that you could monitor and, and watch over and refine and adjust as, as patients went through this kind of a model so you could constantly tweak and adjust those protocols and make sure you're getting the best possible outcomes, not just in one local region where we had really highly talented people at, but we had to be able to scale this across the regions of the country and the world. Okay. And so you, you mentioned you had uh, at least 10 years of research to do. So walk us through how you went from a student graduating in 1994 to starting your company in, in when did it start? 2010? Yeah. And that's when we formally, you know, kind of 
okay. you know, named the organization, but we had been functioning prior to that just in a clinical setting, working with employers for a number of years before we formally, you know, kind of named the organization IMC. We started on that journey after we had that large sample of patients that had gone through the standardized program. And we had worked on the outcomes, gathered outcomes on lots of patients in that standardized program and adjusted them and tweaked them over the course of the, that 10-year time frame. And then we decided to, to start finding employer payer partners that could share financial data with us. So that was our first step after we were confident in the overall methods and the approaches that we were using and the quality assurance mechanisms we had wrapped around the clinical process. We started finding payer partners to work with. And we, we went after small and mid-market employers that were partially self-funded. Then we worked on the workers' comp side of the aisle for a while with those organizations. We partnered with a large HMO here in Tallahassee, Florida that has 135,000 members and they're a staff model HMO. So we, we partnered with them and, and trained and developed their primary care teams to do a better job of triaging cases. We dropped in physical therapists to work side by side with the physicians so they could tightly kind of manage and triage those cases that were at the primary care level and avoid the unnecessary escalation in the imaging, injection care, ER visits, and surgery mm-hmm. or specialty care. We really started working aggressively at that point after that 10-year mark on really looking at the impact we were having on utilization of the high-cost procedures and ultimately what that translated into in regards to total cost of care. You know, what sort of impact were we having on the per member, per month, or per member, per year exposure for the plan whenever we dropped patients into this tightly managed and rigorously measured model versus what happens in the wild, you know, in usual care. Okay. Well, with that in mind, before we get into how IMC is currently structured, can you just kind of give us an overview of what did you find is the impact that you were having when you were closely aligned with primary care and standardizing the approach to musculoskeletal management? So the impact was was pretty dramatic. So what we began to see happening was in an area of medicine where you would have as many as 15% to 20% of the population receiving surgeries, 35 to 45% of the population receiving uh, invasive injection care, and 30 to 40% of the population receiving advanced imaging such as CT and MRI. The utilization of those high-cost procedures began to shift dramatically. So we were seeing 70-plus percent reductions in total surgical rates, 60 to 70% reductions in injection care rates, and about the same translation into advanced imaging rates, and then an almost cessation of of ER utilization in these programs where we were changing the delivery model for primary care and for conservative care providers. What that translated into in real dollars when we partnered with self-funded plans that would give us detailed access, very granular data to look at was about a a $1,500 per member per year shift in the total cost of care for cases that were entering the system with an MSK-related disorder. So the average per member per year exposure for an MSK disorder in the U.S. right now across employers in the country is about $3,300 per member per year that enters the system with MSK disorder. The cohort that we were managing under this rigorously measured and standardized model was about $1,695 per member per year. So a pretty dramatic shift in the total cost of care and a remarkable improvement in the overall quality and the outcomes for these patients that were going through this model versus conventional care. 
Oh, yeah, I can only imagine that the, and I don't want to call it a level of suffering, but you want to talk about an area of medicine where uh, there, there's very likely, based on what you're saying, an overprescription of surgeries and overprescription of treatments that will cause pain, either through recovery or whatnot. And so, I mean, just the level of suffering you're able to avoid is probably pretty dramatic. Is, is that a fair statement? No, it is. And that's one of the metrics where, where we measure, you know, it's one of the key indicators of success clinically for us is, you know, we, we are measuring pain level at every encounter and function level at every encounter and disability level using body part specific disability indices that the science have validated. And when you look at those measures and what sort of impact, these were patient reported outcome measures. So the patient's telling us through the administration of these, of these indices, of these standard assessments, that they were seeing dramatic changes in their overall suffering and their pain level and their disability level. We were able to produce those results in about half the time of conventional care. So the duration of the episode shrunk dramatically. It wasn't just a reduction in utilization of procedures. As you mentioned earlier, it was a reduction in the amount of suffering and the length of time that suffering went on for patients. That was really the most dramatic result. And that was a result that ultimately the HMO here in in Tallahassee was most impressed with. They were happy that it cost less money and that they were using fewer procedures and exposing people to less risky interventions in the medical system, but they were they were most impressed with the fact that patient satisfaction, that promoter scores were extremely high for people going through this model and the amount of suffering and the time it took to get from where they started when they entered the system to a full resolution of their episode was significantly shortened when they compared it to usual care Wow. So with that in mind, I want to get into what IMC does, but I also know that there's so many constituents in the delivery of what you do because you have to have a provider panel, willing employers that will share data, but then also in terms of engaging participants. And so is there any other piece that I've missed in that? When you kind of look at the comprehensive suite of services that we've, we've built and developed, it was very intentional and very deliberate, and it was it was focused primarily on trying to reach and engage with, with first and foremost those members that had the condition and you know, really kind of define for them the the program and its success and the methods being used. You had to have the ability to put brick and mortar facility based care in build networks of those clinics so you could support and provide access for employers that had you know a national footprint or kind of spread all over the country. You had to have a mobile app to deliver some self-care protocols through because not everybody needs to be escalated into a PT Mm -hmm. or chiropractic care routine. Uh, A lot of the MSK disorders that exist can be managed level of primary care without any escalation outside that building. Mm -hmm. But they need a standard self-care offering that they can give out to their patients. That self-care and advice that's currently given out in primary care industries is as variable as what happens in PT and Cairo. You know, it's, you know, one doctor may prescribe this method of conservative care and another one may use a completely different method. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the map. And so we knew we had to create a clear standard there as well. And so we created a mobile app to drive into the primary care space and have that be used as the self-care tool. That effectively removes half your people from the system right there. And then you needed a network of conservative care providers to support the cases that were kind of beyond the scope of self-care and the primary care team. And so you needed highly trained, highly specialized PT and chiro providers that all functioned alike. Uh, You needed a network of them, both facility-based and virtually, so that we could reach not just folks in these areas of high density, 
but also those folks that were in, in the rural areas, remote areas, and that were highly distributed. So we yeah. build out, you know, all of those tools and all of those services to kind of support the MSK population, you know, wherever they may be at. And so that was really the the focus for the last probably eight to 10 years is on designing and building all the technology that supports the training that has to go on to convert these primary care providers into who they need to be, converting the PT chiro providers into who they need to be to, to function at the highest level in this space. The the technology that allows allows us to track the outcomes of every patient going through the system uh, so that we can react to it in real time. You know, we had to build out all of those technology pieces, all that enabling IT and technology that allows us to to really quality assure the program and guarantee that we can do this in Seattle just like we can do it in, in Poughkeepsie, just like we can do it in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, so. but to be clear, I want to make sure that that's understood is that you have, I mean, obviously we talked a lot about your roots being in Florida, but you can mm-hmm. now deliver services anywhere in the country. Is that correct? Yeah, so we currently work with large national employers that have a footprint in all 50 states. And so We've built out an affiliate network. We've built out a virtual care platform and network that will allow us to serve them all over the country. And we can make the same guarantees across the land here in regards to the quality and the impact we're having on suffering, as well as the the reduction in total cost of care. We've made that reproducible from place to place to place. As as I heard one person put it recently, you you guys are the McDonald's of musculoskeletal health. You eat a McDonald's hamburger, it tastes the same no matter what country you're in. And we had to be capable of building and creating providers that could produce the same results no matter what geography they were located in. Yeah. And to be clear, you're not suggesting that people need to change their primary care. You're really helping primary care. Is that, is that a valid statement? Yeah. No, we're enhancing primary care, we're optimizing their capabilities to perform in an area that they're historically weak in. And that's not up for debate. I mean, that's, you know, there's overwhelming evidence in the science to show they don't get training here. And that's why we see these horrible patterns. So we had to be able to take your primary care provider, whomever that may be, and quickly be able to kind of skill them up so they had some capability in this area to effectively triage these cases and diagnose them correctly and put them into the right treatment protocol or pathway at the right time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can tell you personally that, you know, I'm a, I used to be a, a triathlete. Now I just, I run and I bike. But when I first started running, my knees hurt like crazy. And my doctor gave me one injection and it, you know, it was in the knee and didn't need it. Only thing I really needed was to change my shoes. And so once I got fitted for the right shoes, the pain went away. I guess I'm echoing the fact that at least my doctor, and he's a sports medicine doctor, didn't necessarily uh, give me the right treatment. So absolutely agree with what you're saying. I guess the question I would have would be in terms of the process itself, how does somebody find you that is either having musculoskeletal pain or, or you know what I mean, a potential patient? Right. Well, I mean, when we're partnering with self-funded plans, of course, there's a pretty rigorous communication campaign that goes on inside those relationships. So a lot of targeted communication going on between the organization and between us and the population they employ and their dependents as well. So typically they find us through some of that communication and engagement that goes on Oftentimes, there's also plan design changes that are implemented that pre-cert a prior auth around certain procedures that are kind of the gateways to the high-cost stuff that happens in musculoskeletal medicine. We'll, we'll help design those pre-cert and prior auth programs for employers so that we're effectively steering folks into the program. So 
most of the time they're finding us through the series of communication, engagement, incentives, and consequences that are kind of built into and designed in the planning structure. Okay. Is there any data that you're looking at to as well help, not necessarily help the person raise their hand, but help you give some clarity around, maybe we need to reach out to this person. Do you mean, are we kind of mining for folks in the, yeah, in yeah. these populations yeah. that, that may need the service and kind of doing an outreach, outreach to, to them? Yes. Yeah. We, no, we do, we do look for, and we, we get typically three years of historical data from a, from an employer. We'll analyze that data pretty thoroughly. We've got a, we've got a data science and actuarial team that it spends their entire existence and day doing nothing but parsing and wrangling and kind of filtering through and grouping and clustering okay. medical claims data and looking for outlier events. And so we do, we have a call center that does active outreach, kind of a disease management approach, if you would, mm-hmm. and tries to effectively kind of grab those folks that may have a proclivity towards having a problem in the near future and kind of steer them towards the solution. Okay. So yeah, we, we do we do some components of that. Okay. And you, you mentioned uh, having a base of providers that are in centers of high density and then also having mm-hmm. a technology-based solution. What are you finding most people use in the treatment space? Is it more of the app or is, it, is there a preference to having care with somebody that can touch them? I think when you look at the, the millennials, certainly they're, they're more inclined to move towards the app and virtual care. They tend to want to stay in the comfort of work and home to to access a lot of healthcare services nowadays. So we, we see, you know, in certain demographic groups, kind of a high rate of of conversion into the virtual care and mobile apps. You're over 40, 45 year olds typically are still, you know, into that in-person kind of facility-based model of care. Although we do see even in those populations, 15 or 20 percent of them, you know, willing to and actively supporting and using a virtual approach to healthcare and and I think that'll ultimately begin to to translate to even greater rates, you know, over the next you know five to ten years. Okay, and I guess curious because you know, in in terms of the industries that you're more suited for, do you have any that that are are better fits? No, for you? no. It's this is a the unique thing about MSK is it doesn't pick on one particular industry or profession or type of worker. It is it is a nearly universal issue whether you're white collar or blue collar, whether you're in the U.S. or, or abroad, this is a universal condition. You know, this is a, the number one reason someone seeks medical treatment or care in the world is pain. And the number one reason for pain is a musculoskeletal event. And, and low back pain alone is the second most common reason that someone's going to see a physician in the world behind the common cold. Hmm. So that's once again, across populations and across industries. This is really not a problem that's unique to people that are laborers or they're blue collar or that have this really aggressive kind of workload in the course of their day. This, this affects people that sit at a desk or a computer as frequently or as often as it does those who are outside working aggressively during the course of the day. So it, it's just about any organization. And when you look at, once again, the, the cost profile of this category of care, whether it's Google or Ernst & Young or Goldman Sachs or, or any other organization that's white collar versus a Michelin, which is a client of ours. It's you know very industrial uh, production and manufacturing organization. The rates and frequency of care seeking in this space are identical in both populations. Yeah, and the cool thing was is Michelin actually mentioned you in their earn, in their earnings report when they first implemented you. Is that is that correct? When we first started working with Michelin, yeah, we were looking at this from the perspective of what sort of impact were we having on the bottom line. So what sort of return 
were we giving them back in regards to the profitability of the organization based on the savings we're creating? And not just on the direct medical expense, but also the impact you're having on the duration of disability for someone. So if you're shrinking the duration of disability by 20 to 30 days, that takes the pressure off the disability plan and program. It reduces the amount of overtime payments you're making and coverage you need for workers that need to cover for those that are out. You know, you were having a very significant impact, not just on direct medical expenses, but on the productivity of the organization as well. And the kind of softer costs that don't always get tracked that well. You know, they were helping us take a pretty close look at what sort of impact we were having on all of those areas and, and what sort of impact that had on the, the bottom line for them from a profitability perspective. Okay. So in terms of the employee experience, we talked about the, the app-based solution, the office-based solution. Um, is there anything else that we need to do to kind of round out the overall experience? I mean, you did mention that on average, the duration of treatment is about half through you versus a traditional primary care model where they may or may not be getting the right, the right care. Is that fair? That's correct. Is there anything else that we missed in terms of the member experience that you want to make sure we emphasize? Well, I think it's worth mentioning the quality assurance mechanism that gets used here is, is a major centerpiece of the program. Okay. We track the outcomes on every patient that goes through the system, through our network, whether it's virtual or whether it's in-person facility-based care or whether it's the app. And the way we do that is it's very scientific. Once again, kind of coming from my background, it's just the way my mind works and the way we knew we had to design this thing. Every time a member walks in the door of a practice or every time they enter the virtual platform, before they ever see the provider or the clinician, they're going to fill out their pain function and disability scales using those standardized indices we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And at every encounter, they fill out those same scales. Every time they engage with that provider, before they see them, they're going to fill out those scales so we can track the progress of that person from the first point of entry to the point where we release them from care. And that data flows up into the cloud for us, and that database has been designed and formulated to, to flag cases that aren't meeting our expected standard level of improvement from visit one to visit two to visit three, et cetera. And so every week, the providers in our network are going to get a roster of patients or cases that did not pass through the system. And they're going to have to sit in on a small group, what we call grand rounds meeting the following week and work with a team to develop corrective actions for those cases that kind of fell outside of the normal acceptable range and improvement levels. Hmm. So that is a, it's a very sophisticated way of making sure that every person entering the system is getting the outcome that they want and that they deserve. And that also guarantees that the payer is ultimately getting the best possible result and the highest level of value for the investment they're making in this in this system we're talking about here. That's how seriously we take. We know when someone walks in the door of every practice in America, we know what their scores are from a pain and function and disability perspective at that point in time. And we can react to it instantaneously whenever we see that, that outlier event pop up on the radar. That's a pretty rigorous level of scrutiny you place upon a system of providers that are delivering service. Yeah, but not only that, I'm assuming that to participate as a provider within your, I don't want to call it a network, but let's just call it a network, they must maintain a certain level of clinical precision. Is, is that fair? That's correct. Yeah, we, we're, not, we're not into intuitive and empirical medicine anymore. We're into precision medicine. And when we recognize that someone's kind of fallen out of that range that is acceptable, we love them back to health again. We don't kick them out of the 
the system or out of the network. We have training programs that are that are web based that allow us to kind of custom fit the training with the need that that provider may have because we can see where they're falling down in regards to what what sort of patients are giving them trouble, what sort of conditions are really giving them trouble. Are they struggling with hips and knees and doing a great job with the spine, et cetera, et cetera. And if they are, then we've got we've got a custom training template that we can deploy for them to help kind of bring that skill level up and bring them back into range. Mm-hmm. And so it's a constant state of development and evolution for a provider. And, and you know, a lot of people go, well, who the heck would want to sign up for something like this when, when they don't have to do that if they don't want to? Typically what you find is the providers that drop into the system, while it might be a little bit different at first, fall in love with it very quickly because they've got somebody there as a backstop always kind of watching and helping and supporting them. Yeah, and, and that's pretty meaningful to, to providers. Yeah, and I was just going to say, in terms of serving your purpose, obviously you, you do what you do for a living. And if you love it, I mean, you're obviously in it to make money, but you're in it to really provide an outcome to somebody else that you help end their suffering. So I can see how your model would attract folks that, as you said, will love on your patients. Yeah, no, it does. It, it certainly attracts the right type of provider and it creates a, a really wonderful environment, an environment I, I think that most of them thought they'd be able to have whenever they decided to go into medical school. But the reality of it is, you know, medicine is highly variable because there aren't standards, mm-hmm. because there there aren't clear kind of guidelines and protocols that we follow. We don't have a clue. Most providers don't have a clue about what they're doing and why they're doing it in many cases, because they can't track the results and outcomes of all their patients. They've never had that kind of mechanism put in place before, and they've never had transparency around the financial data either. So they don't know what kind of steward they're being of the healthcare resources because no one's ever showed them, shown them the data that says, hey, your cost profile is 30% higher or lower than your partner down the hallway or your partner across the city. They've never seen that. They've never seen the outcomes for all the patients they manage, they, you know, they, they struggle to kind of keep up day to day with just the general activities of being in medicine and to lay on top of that, the outcomes and the transparency around costs, et cetera, et cetera, has really never been a part of their practice. And so they really didn't know how good or how bad they were doing before. We, for the first time ever, oftentimes delivered to them a series of scorecards and dashboards and, and data and transparency that, that allows them to really kind of see where they sit at in regards to the rest of of the organization and the other providers in, in our group. And it allows them to really kind of drive and compete to get better and better. And, that, you know, they're, they're kind of naturally inclined that way anyway. That's why they went into medicine in many instances. They, you know, they're, they're high-performing, competitive people. And whenever you begin to show them the kind of data we're talking about here, they naturally react in a very positive and favorable, mm-hmm. favorable way towards it. So let me ask, because we're talking now about obviously the – pool of providers. But a question in my mind is, in terms of the patients that you're looking for, you're going to have some that are just obvious candidates for surgery. And you're going to have some that are going to be in that category of, they could be referred to surgery, but that's not really the problem. So can, can you help me understand and help the audience understand? It's like, how are you channeling folks to the right buckets of providers? So you have to have a triage function in place that allows you to reliably subgroup patients. Okay. That word subgroup or subclassify is important here because it's like you just mentioned, you do have some people that need surgery. You do have some people that need injection care. 
you do have some people that just need self-care and you do have some people that need to be escalated into a conservative care program with or a PT or Cairo who's got some advanced training can manage them. All of those levels of service are necessary and are needed for a population of MSK sufferers. What the system didn't have and what we did design was a mechanism for reliably subgrouping patients into that right bucket of care. That triage function has to be delivered at the primary care level mm-hmm. because they're the logical, low-cost place to begin that journey at. 50% of the, of the patients that enter the system can be managed with self-care protocols and never have to leave the primary care practice. We just have to stand with our self-care protocol for them and, and give them that tool. They had to be first trained to recognize which patients fit into that bucket. And then they also had to be trained to recognize who is truly chemical or inflammatory and needs an injection. That's about 3% of the population that have an MSK disorder. There's about 3% of the population that truly need a surgery. They're a structural defect. They're broken beyond any capability of injection or PT and chiro care to fix. And they need to go right to the surgeon right then. You don't waste time with six weeks of this or that. Mm-hmm. They clearly need a surgery. And then you've got that bucket of individuals that need the escalation into a more advanced conservative care program that's outside the scope of the primary care team. And so you, you had to be able to create clinicians or providers that were capable of triaging those patients and putting them into those right buckets at the right time. That's what we deployed into primary care was that optimized capability to put those people into the right treatment pathway when they went through that triage process. Wow. So I I guess the thing that's still not clear in my mind is understanding you've got hundreds of thousands of primary care doctors across the country, and many of them don't know who you are. So with an employer that's working with you, I guess the question would be is how are you making sure? I know people have to I call it raising your hand and that typically there's something in the plan that says, okay, before you can go past this measure, whether it's uh, an MRI or something like that, you've got to talk to these guys first, right? So there's going to be something that a plan sponsor could put into their plan to say, hey, look, these are typical events where we want you to talk to IMC first. But how do you help folks that are going to be continuing using their primary care but you guys can intercept and essentially help them through the triaging process and making sure they get the right care. Here's the way we do it with most employers. We take a look at the medical plan data and we figure out where people are seeking primary care at currently in the plan. We're going to find that there are in certain areas, a high utilization of certain primary care centers in that community. So there may be a lot of plan members from company X going into these three or four primary care organizations because they're oftentimes part of a health system. So they're, right. they're kind of aggregated in that sense. And then they're, or they're part of independent practice groups in a region. And what you can do is you can go into those groups and say, Hey, look, I'm working with Michelin North America and Michelin North America has a need in your community for high level primary care. And we know you guys have some critical gaps in your capability in this area. We'll help train and develop you to fill those gaps We'll steer patients your way when we can. We'll enhance your capabilities for the panel of patients you're already seeing from this particular employer. And we'll guarantee you an incentive or a performance bonus for managing these patients under this model. So we'll go to those primary care entities. And if they aren't currently access points for that employer, we'll help create steerage towards them by incentivizing the member to go there by making it free. And we'll provide the training for that primary care team. So they can effectively triage like we discussed a few moments ago, and we'll pay them 
a premium for the delivery of that kind of care. So they're incentivized to continually follow the protocols. So we really kind of align all of the all of the stakeholders and all the influences in that particular market, once again, around a best practices approach for managing patients in, in the musculoskeletal domain. On-site, near-site vendors, direct primary care vendors are another logical option for us. You know, we've met with and have partnered now with a number of direct primary care organizations and a number of on-site, near-site, share-site clinic vendor organizations and have standardized and trained their entire platform so that they can go out and differentiate themselves in the marketplace as a high-performing organization in the musculoskeletal space by virtue of the fact that a lot of these large employers especially are putting in on-site, near-site, and share-site clinic locations we can create that bridge between the employer and that clinic entity by being kind of the intel inside and enhancing their capabilities so much so in this one core area that it kind of differentiates them in that marketplace and and creates a much more unique and much more uh, effective program for them. And the payment for those services can be at a premium because there's so much money to be saved by approaching this domain or the space of healthcare in a very different fashion from a de- delivery perspective. That's fair. So I guess shifting to what an employer should ex- should expect, how do you show value and what should you expect as an employer to get from you to say, here's the folks that we're seeing and here's the expected impact that we have on your folks? Yeah, that's a great question. Our actuarial team, our data science team, you know, they, they pull that three-year historical claims uh, run for a, an employer and we create the benchmark from that data. We say, hey, pre-implementation of the IMC program, here's what your historical per member per month or per member per year spend has been in the MSK category. And we can break that down by procedure level as well and look at the incidence of ER and surgery and injections and imaging and PT and Cairo and whatever way they want to parse it or look at it, we can break it down for them and say, hey, here's your historical benchmark. Moving forward, as we begin to steer lives into our program, we own that life at that moment in time as soon as we touch it. Mm -hmm. And what we will do then is track that member's experience, both clinically and financially, for the rest of that plan year. And what we do is we compare the cohort that we've managed from a financial perspective to their historical cohort and a concurrent control that might be going on out in the community because not everybody's going to go into our program. There are going to be some folks that opt to steer themselves back out into the usual care system, they'll act as a concurrent control or another cohort that we can use to kind of measure our our success against. At the end of the day, at the end of the plan year, we look at the number of members that went through the program, what the per member per year exposure was for the plan for those members we saw versus the historical one versus the concurrent one. And if we don't beat it by 25%, then we repay them the difference. So we make a 25% guarantee, financial guarantee around our results and our outcomes, both clinically and economically. And we've, once again, built that ROI validation in such a way that it kind of survives the scrutiny of any organization that wanted to kind of look at the methods and and the math that we use to do this analysis. We were awarded in 2018 and 2019 a health value award by the World Health Congress and the Care Validation Institute. And they're a third-party organization that looks at the methods and the math and the models you use to kind of determine your your savings, and they kind of vouch for your statistics. Yeah, and so we've passed the scrutiny of that. We've published cost data in peer review. We've been very open and transparent with how we track and monitor our successes, both clinically, clinically and economically. 
and we're happy to share those measures with any employer that wants to look at the opportunity and kind of see what sort of return can be expected with, with this kind of a program. Okay. And you know, in terms of some of the last questions, I, I always want to know how you guys make money. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So we're a use-based organization. We don't have PMPM or PPM models. We sterilize into the program and we get paid a flat case rate for care that's delivered in primary care or in conservative care. We create a step therapy program where you steer it first through primary care when you can. There's a case rate that will hit for that triage consult for an MSK disorder that can be administered through the plan or it can be carved out. And there's a case rate for the conservative care that might be necessary in about 50% of the cases. And so we price it that way. And when we build out our network, we provide them with the training and the quality assurance and the technology to support all that. And we take a case management fee out of every case rate that goes to those affiliated clinics. So that's how IMC gets paid. We get paid through the management fees that are taken out of the case rates that are given to the providers delivering the care. And is that something that's easy for the client to see? I mean, do you just say, okay, out of the total expend, this is how much we made? Yep. Now, we'll, once again, very transparent with all of that. They know exactly how much we're receiving. You know, they they know what the case rates are. They know what the providers are receiving. And and of course, in this kind of model, you know, we've got all the incentives aligned. We we certainly have to be able to pay providers enough money to make this attractive. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to save enough money to the employer to make this attractive. And we have to be able to make enough money to stay in business with the model we've created. So we've tried to really align all of those pieces such that they work perfectly. Yeah, understand. And so I always like to ask at some point, what, what is your why? You have a very strong curiosity bend around you, a very strong analytical bend around you, and a passion to serve. And so can you answer that? What is your why? You know, it probably sounds a little corny sometimes, and some people hear it and they go, oh, come on, really? I was just truly frustrated at watching people continue to come through these clinics, suffering, losing their jobs, losing their careers, losing their families in some instances, bankruptcy, in many instances because of unnecessary, ineffective care. And when you look at musculoskeletal medicine kind of through the broader lens and understand all the things I understand and that the people in my organization understand, it can anger you quickly because musculoskeletal medicine is the only domain of healthcare where the condition won't kill you, but the treatment will. The opioid crisis is a perfect example of it. You know, the, the primary reason we have an opioid crisis in this country is because we've been attempting to treat non-malignant pain, the non-cancerous pain, with opioids. So musculoskeletal events are the number one reason someone has non-malignant pain. The low back epidemic that we've got in this country single-handedly created the opioid crisis and is killing 60 to 70,000 people a year. So when you realize that and you see all this data constantly coming out in the science, you know, 8% of total hips and total knees within 90 days are dead. The opioid crash is killing 60 to 70,000 a year and overutilization of invasive care and the impact that has on complications and infection rates and mortality. And you start to see all that stuff stack up in front of you and you realize that you've got a solution that stops most of that, mm-hmm. then you have a responsibility at that point to do something about it. Wow. And we take that responsibility very significantly, very, very, very passionate about what we do because we have that great responsibility to do the greater good and to provide this service. And that was also the primary reason we built the app. The mobile app is completely free. Mm-hmm. Anyone can get it. It won't cost a penny. It's on the Apple store. It's on the Google Play store. And they can access their own effective self-care protocols right there through that app and never have to enter a medical system if they don't want to. And so we're, we're just very mission-oriented, very passionate, and, and 
you know, really just trying to do the greater good because we know ultimately that takes care of the bottom line. Yeah. And I can tell you, Chad, I felt that from your heart. And uh, I just have to say thank you for doing what you're doing. If somebody wants to get a hold of you or your company, what would be the best way to do that? They can jump on the website at uh, imcpt.com. There's a contact page on there, of course, where they can just drop an email to us or a phone number they can reach out and call us. You know, all that information is right there on the website. So that's probably the best mechanism for doing it. Okay. Well, I always say I, I learn something from everybody I talk to when I do these podcasts. And Chad, this is a, it's been an amazing interview. I, I did not know what to expect, but I always hear the genius come through when you have someone, some individuals such as yourself that have a curious background and just a passion to drive and serve, drive value and serve. And so I can't thank you enough for your time, but is there, is there something that you wanted to make sure that the audience knows or something that we may have missed that's very vital to your organization? No, I think certainly the, the overall mission of the organization kind of speaks for itself and, and really kind of defines who we are and what we do. We're very passionate and we're, we're very aggressive when it comes to, to taking care of people and doing the right thing and kind of shifting and changing, you know, what's happened in, in this industry for the last 50 plus years. And so I appreciate folks like you really helping us kind of get that message out there. You know, we can't do it without, without folks like you and, and the Lee Lewis's of the world and, and the other great brokers out there that are really, once again, really helping us try to innovate, kind of disrupt what's happening here in, in the medical system. And so, you know, I want to, I want to thank you for that, for that opportunity or this opportunity and all the other folks that are out there really fight, fighting the good fight because yep. there's a small group of them out there and they're all very mission driven. They're all very passionate. They're, they're all very kind of nimble and agile. And so it's, it's a pretty cool time to be in healthcare as I see it. You know, a lot of really great things coming in the future here. And so once again, thanks for your, your interest and, and, and the opportunity to kind of tell our story and deliver our message. Yeah, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk with you and uh, look forward to having more of these opportunities in the future. So, Chad, thank you. Yeah. Thank you sincerely. So, thanks a lot, Mike. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Solving Healthcare. If you like this episode, please rate it and also provide your comments. If you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization, or if you'd like to sign up for future podcasts and news updates, please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net and click on contact.